Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Philip Kennedy. I direct the Institute's public program. I'm sure I know many of you in person. And I hope to meet you through the year at our receptions, which we always have afterwards, by the way. It's a warm welcome to you all. This is um, the launch of our 16-17, academic year 16-17 season. We're delighted to see you all here. So we begin with drama. We're delighted uh, to have our guest this evening, who will be introduced to you by, by our, our moderator, Catherine Carey, showcasing the best practices of Sundance's global theatre initiatives. She's um, on the faculty of NYU Tisch, which is the School of the Arts on Washington Square, and has been there since 1991. And she teaches and collaborates with artists in Austria, Belarus, Chile, Cuba, Egypt, and Lebanon. She's a, an internationalist, if ever there was one, in, in the field of theatre. In any event, she's currently an, uh, an NYU Abu Dhabi f- faculty affiliate. She has been for several years, in fact, now. And the key thing is that she's the acting uh, NYU AD theatre program head, and that's where I'll stop even though her, her CV is much longer than, than that. So I hand over to you, Catherine. Thanks very much for organizing this panel and enjoy the evening. Okay, hi, everybody. It's great to be here. And uh, I'm particularly excited because these people are my friends and I've been waiting for a long time to have everybody together here. Introducing everyone first uh, to my immediate right is Asimwe Deborah. Uh, She's an award-winning playwright, producer, and performer. She's currently a co-curator and producer of the Kampala International Theatre Festival in Uganda. Asimwe worked with the Sundance Institute Theatre Program, leading the East Africa Initiative for six years. She received a BA in Theatre and Performing Arts from Makarere University in Kampala, Uganda, and an MFA in Writing for Performance from the California Institute of the Arts. Uh, at the center here is Philip Himberg, who has been the artistic director of the Sundance Theater Program since 1996. The Sundance Theater Laboratory is considered the preeminent play development program in the United States. Over 14 years, the lab has also provided support for theater makers in East Africa, including Uganda, Kenya, Burundi, Ethiopia, Rwanda, and Tanzania, and has hosted residency labs on Lamu and Zanzibar. As a playwright, Philip most recently wrote a play called Paper Dolls, which received its world premiere at the Tricycle Theatre in London in 2013 and is slated for an American premiere in 2017. He has taught at the Yale School of Drama and at New York University in the Tisch School of the Arts. Christelle Koder, at my far right, is here with us from Beirut. She's a theatre performer, writer, and a regular artistic collaborator of the Zukak Theatre Company. She graduated in performing arts from the National Institute of Fine Arts in Beirut and was trained in physical theater at the International School of Theater in Brussels. Since 2008, she has led theater workshops and social interventions with different communities across Lebanon. Christelle took part in the Sundance Theater Lab 2016 in Marrakesh as dramaturg. So please help me to welcome these wonderful people to Abu Dhabi. (laughs) 
So the focus this evening is on the relationships that have been uh, built by the Sundance Institute theater program in their playwright labs in various locations all over the world. And we're going to focus on two of those initiatives in particular, the, the playwright lab in East Africa and the playwright lab just begun in the Middle East and North Africa, started in Marrakesh back in May. But before we dive into talking about those labs, I wanted to get a kind of overview of the Sundance Institute theater program um, because it has a rich history and we're going to try to be brief. And actually, we have a wonderful clip that we can show you, which will give you some basic information about how the theater program has been working all these years. So why don't we go ahead and show that and then we'll follow up with some comments from from Philip. Our kind of amazing alchemy at Sundance, the ability to go for a hike or sit by the water or listen to the wind or take a ride on the lift is as important as putting pen to paper. Storytelling needs a sense of place. I think it begins with a sense of place. began his life as a man of the theater, invited a playwrights conference to the Sundance Resort back in the early 80s. And that was the genesis of what we now have as a theater program at Sundance. Time is really, really important and valuable. And for many, many writers, coming to a place where you have three weeks of support and a schedule that allows you to work every other day with your actors and then every day in between with your dramaturg or with your director or on your own just writing is an amazing, amazing luxury. For the writers to have a workshop where you can watch it and then you can have a whole day where you can write and then bring new pages is a big part of the reason that you can be so productive here. What's really great about this institute is that they let you take your time. There's not the same goal for everyone. They say, if you want to show 20 pages, you show 20 pages. Because it all goes back to the writing. For me, there's kind of two basic functions that I try to provide as a dramaturg. One is to help the writer kind of filter out all the white noise that can surround play development. And the second is to keep the writer connected to the animating impulse behind the work. The dramaturg is really, it's nurturing, but also a little, you know, you know, he's um, tough in the right way. The other piece that is equally important is we want the artist to be able to take a risk right to the last moment. We want a playwright to be able to come in the day of their final reading and say, I have a brand new draft and we're going to read it cold. The narrative isn't made on the stage. The narrative is made in the imaginative space between what happens on the stage and the audience. And theater doesn't exist without an audience. All of it is just preparation for that ephemeral connection. Sundance is, in my opinion, one of the most important new play development programs in the country, and I think now more recently, you can say uh, internationally. We went to Kenya to do the first lab there. They modeled it just like the Utah lab. 
they found a beautiful place where people could really get away from their lives and really focus on the work. In no way did they kind of compromise on quality. It was the exact same idea. And it was probably one of the most amazing experiences I've had in my life. Satellite theater labs take place each year in Florida, the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts, and in New Cross, Wyoming. Across the ocean on the islands of Manda, Kenya, and Zanzibar, Tanzania, we host East African theater artists from six countries. For over a decade, our work in the region has resulted in dozens of new productions reaching audiences across the world. We are now poised to begin cultural programming in the Middle East and North Africa and hope to create a kind of triangle among American, African, and Arab theater makers. Our newest lab focuses on the art of the stage director and takes place in oral France. It's our responsibility in a certain way to reflect the landscape of what artists are creating, not only across America in terms of theater work, but globally as well. Thank goodness there is a place like Sundance calling the best artists from around this country. Their plays are the work I hope to do you know, the next 20 years of my life. You know, we come here with these questions and they help us find the answers. And without this process, I couldn't do it on my own. I think some of my most fruitful artistic collaborations uh, have been hatched here. There is something about theater, about the gathering of people in a dark space, gathering strangers, that has the potential to foment some kind of change. And I think it reflects the greater idea of Sundance as well. All of us are working because we believe deep in our hearts that the contribution we have to make is to be open to change, to find voices that are gonna lead change, and hopefully create some kind of infertile environment where um, people aren't afraid to move forward. I don't believe any of us are, are too successful or too accomplished ever to not be able to learn something new. And I think that's one of the reasons the, the lab has succeeded. It's nice that the, uh, the theater program at the Sundance Institute is connected to an institute of film as well, because when you put together an archive, uh, you have the best people working on it. That's a really beautiful clip. So that, that gives you a little bit of an idea of what happens at the Sundance Institute Play Labs. And uh, what I was hoping Philip could tell us a little bit about is what has it been about the work that you've been doing in the lab all these years that led you to give such serious consideration to having a lab abroad and why begin in East Africa? Uh, what were the steps that led to that? Uh, thank you, Catherine. Um, let me say two things first. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having us here. It's actually momentous to be in Abu Dhabi for the first time in my life and to be at NYU and thank Catherine for making that happen. And also, I just want to say that that, that really lovely a created uh, piece is, is a little cringeworthy for me. It feels a little bit like how great Sundance is. But the, to answer your question directly, um, I actually began the international work because not because of anything I thought we could provide people outside of Sundance, but because when I came to Sundance early in the, I guess, 1997, 98, I was appalled by the fact that the American artists working at Sundance um, had no curiosity or very little curiosity about work outside of our own borders. 
it was surprising to me that the isolation that our own country probably imposes, or maybe artists impose upon themselves, um, didn't feel very um, nourishing to the work. So the impulse to actually do work outside of the U.S. was an impulse to support American writers in the hope that they would have greater horizons as they moved forward. That was the actual impulse. Um, the reason we chose um, the East African area, um, I had been invited there by an extraordinary man named Philip Arnaud, who um, maybe is the grandfather of international cultural exchange from the U.S., remarkable human being. I imagined the thesis was that if there were places in the world where there was gigantic change taking place and many, many challenges, change that was political or social or environmental, what have you, there would most likely be a younger generation of artists making work, storytellers in the theater that were responding to what was happening in their immediate environment. And so East Africa, each country being extremely different from the other at that time and still are, um, provided that opportunity. So I came to Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania initially and later on Ethiopia and um, Rwanda. And uh, indeed, there was in fact this great generation whose feet were not planted in this sort of colonial world, but were really breaking or had broken out from the influences of that and were telling remarkable stories in remarkable ways and not in Western dramaturgical ways. So the impulse was to, to find these people, find these stories, identify them. And we did it. What we, what we do initially is to bring those artists to our lab in Utah, which you just saw, um, and just without any expectation and just say, here's what we do. Is it resonant in any way, shape, or form to what you do? Because it may not be. And if it is, let's have a dialogue about it. And ultimately, the conversation would lead to uh, the artists from that part of the world saying, you know what we need? We need this kind of residency lab in East Africa. And one of the first people I met when I went to Kampala was this remarkable playwright to my left, Asimwe. And she um, was, had just finished Makera or was finishing Makera. Still a student. She showed me around um, uh, Kampala, I remember quite well. And uh, later she actually did her graduate work uh, at uh, CalArts in Los Angeles. Uh, in between, she came to our lab and saw what we did. Later she joined our staff and really co-led the East African Initiative for well over 10 years. Um, it was really important to me that the artists from the region were leading the initiative. And Deborah did that brilliantly um, and continues to do that, both as an artist and as an arts administrator. So that's how it began. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I think I would like to see that uh, clip that we have uh, about the East Africa Lab, and then we can talk some more yeah, about it. I warn it. you, this was done like on my iPhone yeah. or maybe a flip phone. I don't even remember, but it's <laughs> not what you just saw. It's just a very quick little look at um, one of our travels in 2009. Brilliant. It was a research trip. Yeah, yeah great.
I'm here in Rwanda uh, working for the Sundance Theater program. We've been here about five days. It's been absolutely amazing and life-changing for all of us. Uh, we planned this trip for a long, long time. It's our second time in Africa. And we're here with uh, Kiki, who some of you may remember as one of the uh, lab fellows in 2000.
was the year where um, the fiscal crisis happened. And I remember sitting around a table at the Sundance Institute with my, my colleagues from the film festival and the other programs. And, um, you know, when that fiscal crisis happened, 2008, 2009, the first thing every not-for-profit was told to cut was travel, right? That's what you cut. You cut travel, you'll save a lot of money. And I remember my colleague who runs the Sundance Film Festival, John Cooper, who's an amazing gentleman, said, oh, well, okay, this year, instead of bringing 15 people to Cannes for the Cannes Film Festival, we're just going to bring three. And then he turned to me and said, I guess you're going to have to cut Rwanda. And I remember thinking, um, Cannes and Rwanda are not exactly (laughs) sort of. But what was more important about that was it was so easy in American mindset to think when things get bad, you cut international, it falls off the table. And international is absolutely core for us. So we made that trip to Rwanda and Tanzania and Kenya and Lamu um, on very few days. We ran ourselves around the continent that time because it was important to show up. We showed up every single year um, during that time and after. And even this current year, um, we had other cuts that had to be ha- happening for this fiscal year. And uh, instead of, of uh, having any effect on the international program that lies ahead, we've actually cut our core lab in Utah this year in some way. It'll work. It's going to be a beautiful lab. It'll be different so we could continue to do the international work. And I think that's really important when one commits to this work, that it just be core and you figure out around it. Mm-hmm. I really love what you said before about the impetus for the exchange programs having to do with the American artists. I remember when I first started getting involved with uh, creating exchange opportunities, people would say to me, well, aren't you worried that you're taking opportunities away from U.S. American artists? And I'd, I'd say, well, it does seem to me that uh, in order for us to stay part of the global conversation, that our artists and our playwrights in particular are going to have to be exposed to the stories Uh, of other writers all over the world. So I hear you on that one. And that film, while it may seem rough to you, gives uh, me, anyway, a very strong sense of the place and what you experienced uh, being there. And uh, But to talk about the nuts and bolts of the lab, the East Africa Lab, I'd love to hear from both of you about the process of selecting the, the work and the writers and a little bit what the process was like. You brought together actors, dramaturgs, playwrights, directors. Can you talk about the process of putting it together? What does that mean to put together a lab? You want to do that, Deborah? Thank you very much. First of all, thank you so much for having us here. Like Philip, this is my first time in Abu Dhabi, so I'm very excited to be here. Just to briefly talk about the way we selected the lab. Uh, First of all, the Sundance Theatre Programme spent, I think, five years trying to understand the region. Initially, uh, it was Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, and then eventually Rwanda, Burundi, and Ethiopia. And I think in those five years, what the programme was trying to do was to get to know the artists, get to understand the landscape, and most importantly, get to hear what the artists were telling them. And in those five years, that was before I started working with them. So I was one of the first artists that Philip invited from the region to go to the lab in Utah, observe, they used to call us international observers, such a fancy title. 
Um, so we used to observe the labs and, and, and then would have conversations with Philip. And the question that Philip, I remember asking me was, is this something that you think would resonate with the artists in Uganda? And my initial impulse was like, wow, this is such a luxury. I'd never imagined that artists can be taken away from their daily routine and just taken out to this place where they don't think about anything else but their art. And then, you know, be given a beautiful space, be given a, you know, a modest stampede for them to work, you know, being provided for. And so then in 2009, when I joined the program as a staff member, we started creating a database of all of the artists that, uh, that Philip had met, Christopher and Roberta had met in all these six countries. And then that year, we sent out an email to all of these artists we had created in the database we had created and invited them to submit work. And so it was an open submission process. We read all of the submissions that we received. We evaluated them. And then we sat down together, the staff, and talked about every single submission. And then we made selections. And we made sure that at least each country uh, was represented. And then we, when we informed the playwrights we had selected, we asked them if they knew the directors, if they had any directors they wanted to work with, or a company of actors they were interested in working with. And most of these people they were suggesting to us were people we had already met. Uh, some of them we had had workshops with them. And for some playwrights, we didn't have any directors in mind. We kind of did an arranged marriage uh, between playwrights and directors. And then when it came to dramaturgs, because the way we created the lab, which is, the labs were really modeled, uh, on the Sundance Labs in Utah, uh, we had each product, each play had a, a director, a company of actors, and dramaturgs. And we selected dramaturgs from Eastern Africa as well as from the U.S. So, in a nutshell, that's that's the way we are making this. And but out of curiosity, when you did those arranged marriages, right? The playwright didn't necessarily request a particular director, so you you put people together. That's such a great alchemy. I, that's one of my favorite things in life is to do that. What was going through your mind when you decided to ask Liesl Tommy to go, for example, or Rebecca Tashman? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a very delicate uh, arranged marriage, and some of them have been successful, and some, frankly, have not. Um, Liesl Tommy. Um, you may know her, is a, works in the U.S., but she was born in South Africa. And she was a really, really, and is a very, very useful artist because she really naturally bridges the cultures. You know, it's in her blood to understand what's different. And Liesl's been, continues to be very, very helpful that way. Um, Liesl just was nominated for a Tony Award for a play called Eclipsed that was on Broadway by Danae Garai. Rebecca Tashman, honestly, that relationship was a complicated one with, with Kiki and didn't ultimately bear bear fruit. And there's many reasons for that. We can go into another time. So they're not always successful. And but these are the things we find out, right? Yeah, and then yeah. it involves a certain amount of risk. Yeah. And the learning curve working internationally is endless. Mm. Endless. You know, I mean, I feel like being in East Africa for 14 years, I do know a great deal about that community 
And yet I know if I were to go back, which I'm sure we will, I will make mistakes again. Mm -hmm. And the work we're doing in Mina now as well, there's, it's constantly, oh, I thought, oh, it's that all the time, which is great. So there's one more thing I wanted to touch on um, before we move forward, um, and that is what came out of the East Africa Lab. And there's a lot, there's so much, but there's one thing in particular, which is an initiative that uh, that you, I know, are deeply involved in. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that string, right, that thread that led you from Sundance East Africa to the Kampala Theatre Festival. Thank you. So one of the things that I do now in Kampala is to curate and produce a theatre festival. It's called Kampala International Theatre Festival. And this is something that evolved out of the work uh, that Sundance was doing in the region for 13 years. Now, one of the things that we used to do during the time that Sundance was heavily involved in the region was that after every lab in East Africa would sit down with the artists and ask, is this still something that is relevant to you? And I remember in the lab of 2012, uh, no, 2011, after a conversation with a playwright, they said, you know what, actually, we'd rather have a director's lab next year. So we did a director's lab in 2012 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, and then after that, in 2013, uh, the lab we had in Zanzibar, again, we had a conversation and that time we had also a Sundance uh, theatre program staff, we had started thinking about the value of having East Africans themselves completely take the lead. And, and so when we sat down with the artists, the question they asked us was, okay, so for the past 13 years, the Sundance theatre program has been supporting the development of new work. But they said, we are aware that the Sundance Theatre Programme does not produce, does not present. So what is going to happen to all this work that we have developed over the years? And so, so we looked at them and said, okay, so what should happen? And one of the things that came out of the artists was the need to create a platform where new work or you know, existing work imagined in new ways can be experienced by East African audiences. And through some of the works we had developed over time had already received productions within East Africa, outside of East Africa, like in Europe and some readings in, in New York City. So, so then we started talking about actually establishing a festival, a theater festival, and we, ha we identified a Ugandan artist who had already created festivals in different fields, fest uh, music festival, uh, film festival, but they didn't have a theatre component. Uh, the organisation is called Bayimba Cultural Foundation. So we invited the artistic director to our last lab uh, in Zanzibar, and we had a conversation with him, and he was really thrilled so that's how we started the partnership of creating the Kampala International Theatre Festival. This year is in its third year. Uh, the first festival was in 2014 in Kampala, Uganda. And the first festival was exclusively for Eastern Africans, for the artists from the six East African countries. And then last year, we decided to open it up and we received submissions really from 
all over the world. And we had, we indeed had East African playwrights. Uh, we also had playwrights from Europe, from Kosovo, from, um, and as well as from the Middle East, from Iraq, from Belgium, from, from Lebanon this year, last year we didn't, yeah. So, and then this year, we, it's actually going to be even bigger than last year. We have artists again from East Africa and from other parts of Africa, uh, Egypt, Zambia, Cameroon, uh, Ethiopia slash US, the Philippines, Kosovo, Hungary. So, yeah, and there's a short video clip. Yeah, we have a, we have a one-minute uh, clip we'd love to show you about the Kampala Theatre Festival. Can we run that now? This year, we decided to uh, ask for submissions from, you know, from all over the world. And we received uh, almost about 70 submissions. We read all of them, we evaluated them, and we selected five, uh, five productions and three readings. We have a, a kind of fun piece of uh, information about this year's festival, right? Because the, from the submissions, uh, several pieces were chosen from East Africa, and uh, one of them was written by. Uh, why don't you tell the folks? So when yeah, what Catherine I'm is very proud about. of this. So. <laughs> what Catherine is talking about is that one of the plays that's going to feature in this year's festival is by uh, Yang woman playwright called Kisa uh, Sanyu Kisaka, uh, who was a student of Catherine's here. Uh, so she, her plays are also going to feature yeah, in the we're festival. Very proud of her. Really yes, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, we have a wonderful course uh, in Fall 2 by Professor Bob Vorlicky, who is, uh, like me, an affiliate from the Tisch School of the Arts. And the course is called African Women Playwrights. <laughs> So he'll be taking his class uh, to Uganda for the festival, and we're hoping that that's just uh, the beginning of uh, a long association and exchange. For the second, that's right, that's the second time. So now we're going to keep building on that, yeah? Great. Okay, so now we have this uh, uh, history, this legacy of, uh, of work in East Africa, which has uh, led to so many other wonderful initiatives and collaborations. And uh, this year, after a serious amount of uh, research and, uh, and trips to the Middle East, there is now a Middle East North Africa uh, Association, um, a lab that took place in Marrakesh in May. You want to talk a little bit about that and then we'll show a clip of that? Yeah, great. Um, so um, we moved our focus uh, in post-Arab Spring to uh, Middle East and North Africa for obvious reasons and um, made trips to uh, Amman and to Jordan, to Lebanon, to Egypt, to Tunisia, to Morocco, to Palestine, and met again with dozens and dozens of, of artists and saw a lot of work. 
uh, brought people from those countries to our lab in Utah in the same way we had brought the East African artists to say this is what we're doing. And uh, then decided to establish our first residency lab in the Middle East um, in Morocco, outside of Marrakesh. It's very important for us to always go to places that are outside of the city so people have the wonderful, we call the alchemy of, of nature and art. And we found the perfect uh, place um, uh, called the Fela Hotel, which is connected to a not-for-profit called Dar al-Mamun, which is a, a really amazing library, an extraordinary library, uh, about 20 kilometers from um, Marrakesh itself. And there were rooms for about 70 people, and there was rehearsal spaces and, and restaurants and everything else. We took it all over. Um, the giant challenge was to get visas for all of those artists. Um, well, let me just say one thing about this lab. This is the big piece of this lab. I woke up one day about two years ago and thought, we're doing something not quite right. We're doing this, we're waking up every day, we're reading the New York Times about the world, and then we're going off and doing theater. And we're doing theater for Americans some days, and some days we're doing theater for people who are not Americans. And I thought, there's a problem here. We're, we still have this wall. Even though there were artists from other countries in our lab and we brought Americans over there, it felt like we were still sort of compartmentalizing, which I can't stand. So um, I woke up and I thought, what's the scariest thing we could do? The scariest thing we could do was to cancel the annual lab in Utah in July, which had happened for 35 years. So I knew that that was the right thing to do. And so I canceled the lab and said, let's do one world lab. Let's do it outside of America, outside of Marrakesh. It'll be half U.S. projects and half projects from the Middle East, North Africa. It'll be Arabic language work and American work side by side. So that's what we did. Giant experiment, and it was extraordinary. And this woman, Christelle Kadara, will talk more about it because she came from Beirut to be a part of it. But that's the genesis of that. And do you want to show that? Yeah, let's show that clip. proud of the fact that 40 American artists here now know somebody from Lebanon, from Morocco, from Iraq, and vice versa. Sequestered here on this campus are people from 20 different countries. So we're sequestered, but we're sequestered in an incredibly international environment. يعني يعطوني إلهام كثيراً يعني للمستقبل إنه ممكن أقدر أشتغل مع فنانين من خارج الوطن العربي يعني حتى من بلجيكا. It was interesting to see how people started to like observe each other in the beginning and how slowly we started to see friendship happening. Being out of my conversationalist comfort zone, uh, I think is always a positive thing and um, and a provocative thing. الشيء الثاني انه طريقه التمارين عند الكوميونيستيت الامريكان او العرب مختلفه او الاوروبيين يعني كومبليتلي ديفرنت The Middle Eastern North African projects mostly no, there's no tables in any of their rooms and in all the American rooms there's a huge table that actors sit around and it's a different it's a different way of working and, and and both of them have their benefits it's just different because it's urgent to tell the big history in the region 
and telling this big history needs this spectacular aspect. I think uh, every day is a challenge in a good way because it, there are people coming from different parts of the world who speak different languages, who whose understanding of what process, theatrical process, is is different. So to me, that's really the plus. The challenge is the plus because every day you're trying to figure out how do we speak to each other from different cultures through different languages, uh, and how do we speak with one voice. There's something about realizing that people are making things in all sorts of really, really different ways that I feel like asks you to invest really fully in the way that you make a thing. I was uh, very uh, surprised about uh, the reactions uh, of people yesterday after the performance. People came and said, we didn't understand a word, but we felt something which moves us from inside. I think it's a good thing. يعني لما أفتح نقاش مع شخص أو مخرج مسرحي من أمريكا عم يشتغل على مسألة العنصرية بأمريكا ومسألة السود والبيض هي إشكاليات أنا في أتواصل معه فكر فيها. وبالتالي كمان اعكسها بالعلاقه مع السياق والمحيط والبيئه يلي انا عايش فيه كمان. And what I share as being an artist of color, I share a visceral and innate understanding of the disenfranchised, and yet the details of our journeys and our challenges are very different. على عرض محل هو كثير شخصي يعني بس فبعتبر كثير انه بعتبر حالي كثير محظوظه انه انا موجوده بمساحه ومش مضطره افكر بولا اي شيء ثاني غير بهاللحظه بهيدا الوقت انا قادره اشتغل مع عالم بدي اشتغل معهم. So I feel like what we do is we create an opportunity for the artist to craft something that will require the audience to lean forward. Because when you're in the audience and there's people of different ages and different races and different, you know, cultures and different sexualities, that is part of the event. So you're all witnessing something together and you can give each other permission to laugh. You can give each other permission to cry or be surprised or you can see how this person is reacting and wondering why you're not. People often say, where, where are you? Where have you been, Americans? Where have you been? We welcome you. We want you to be here. We want to know more about you. We want to talk to you and we want to be heard. So I see that happening at the lab in a really intense way. I think being in community with people and artists who speak different languages, who have different thought processes, who come from different contexts, can only enhance your own artistic journey. I, I just find myself and I see other artists find themselves cracked open by being in other places. I think, you know, if anything, our work here is to push people to be larger than they imagine they can be.
So you put an incredible group of people together. That's really clear. And I would love to hear a little bit about the process, processes that took place. So, for example, um, Christelle, uh, what was the project you were working on in particular? I was working on uh, Anna Akash play uh, uh, them. I was at uh, as a dramaturg in uh, in the Sundance, this beautiful lab, and I'm very happy to be here, and I'm honored to talk about this experience and to share it with you. So it's uh, them of Anna Akash. Anna Akash is a Syrian playwright who lives in Damascus, and I was working uh, on the Crave Sarah Kane's Crave with uh, Marion Lecrivain, who is a French director who lives in Paris. And uh, we had also an artist in residency for uh, uh, writing residency, Hamza Boulez, who was developing his text uh, for two weeks, during two weeks. So you were working on several projects while you were there, two projects in particular. Three. Three. Yeah. And you were working in a few different languages, correct? You were working in Arabic, English, and French? Uh, With Mario, it was French and Moroccan dialect, with Hamza, it's Moroccan dialect, and uh, and then with Anna, it's the Shami dialect. It's very close to me. So I'm very curious about the role of the dramaturg in a lab situation, because uh, a dramaturgy or the role of the dramaturg in the theater varies from culture to culture. And I'm just wondering, in a lab situation, what your role was, and was it different for each project? Uh, it was not different for, for each project because Sundance uh, has uh, its own view, a vision of what is a, a dramaturg. And uh, when we had the first Skype meeting with Philip, for him it was very important that a dramaturg really had questions the why this artist want to tell this story and the dramaturg has to facilitate or really inner story, the impulse, why is this artist, this artist wants to do this project. And it's not like it has this kind of policy or it looks like this dramaturgy or playwriting. Sundance, it's never, it's never like this. It's just really listen, ask the smart questions and really listen again. And was there anything that came out of the work on uh, any of those projects that surprised you in terms of process? You know, as you were working with the different artists, uh, what came out of it that uh, you you knew certain things going in? You were familiar with some of the text, maybe a little bit familiar Mm. with the artist, and you knew what your role was based on what you just Mm. said. But what surprised you about the process? Uh, uh, What was very um, surprising, for example, is that we have a Syrian text and we have five lovely uh, women, one from Palestine and one from, uh, uh, two from Syria, one from Lebanon and one from Lebanon living in France. And for each of them, it resonates in a way. And the text talks about the actual Syria. And for example, with Marion's uh, adaptation of Sarah Kane, there is a, there was a big challenge because she had a French actor uh, with two uh, Moroccan actors, and there was a mix between the French language and the uh, the Moroccan dialect, which was brilliantly translated. But what was really amazing about all this is that we could, when we saw, because in the last week of the lab, 
We, we, we watch each other's work for all the three weeks. And what was really surprising is that, for example, we've had Eve's song, I forgot the name of the, the playwright of, of Ion Lloyd. And you had the actors who were Syrians and it was about uh, South and North Korea. And even the theme, the tema, what they are talking about, it touches us. One of the American actors that I really understood this play when I heard the story of Helene, who is Syrian and who couldn't go out of Syria. So this is very uh, interesting. And if song is very interesting when we are talking about women dying today, uh, Afro-American women dying today, each day, and nobody is talking about them. This really resonates with what we are living in this part of the world also. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it sounds like such an incredibly unique situation, uh, Philip, uh, particularly the way you composed the lab, which, as you described, canceling the lab in Utah in order to compose this lab and bring the U.S. artists together with artists from uh, these other countries um, and working in several languages. I mean, the tremendous commitment and effort that goes into bringing those people together. And I'm not just talking about the visas, although can we talk about visas? I mean, seriously, and not just the visas, but just the, the moment-to-moment delicacy of we're working in these various languages. We're get, bringing Syrian actors together with uh, an African-American playwright, etc. I mean, can you talk about just what that does for you? Because I think you like that. Well, I'll just say that it's become, I've been at Sundance a long time, maybe too long. Um, but I will say that what is most, um, what gets me up in the morning and what keeps me up at night probably is this work, this work um, right now in the Middle East and North Africa and the work we continue to do uh, with East Africa as well. Because we're trying to form a triangle, East Africa, North Africa, Middle East and the U.S. And we're actually adding to that because this year we'll be going, we'll be going into areas where mostly Syrian, but other Middle Eastern uh, newcomers, refugees, artists in exile are working. So this year, we're going to do a lab in Berlin for refugee artists, theater makers living in the EU, living in Germany, who actually can't travel. So they're not able to come to our labs in America, and they're not able to come to our labs even in the Middle East. So we realized we need to go where they are. So we'll be doing a playwrights program uh, there. So it'll be kind of a trapezoid. Is that what it is? Something like that. Um, I'm never good at math. But what, what Christelle said, I think people always say, well, how do you choose the work? It's open submission. Are there themes? And there's never a theme. It's not like we're going to do plays about violence or plays about. But at that lab, the theme that emerged was the theme of home. It was the theme of, of what it means to be home. So when Christelle was talking about Hansel Jung's play, Hansel is a Korean-American who wrote a play about a woman who leaves North Korea, escapes to South Korea, has a love affair, and then is compelled to go back to North Korea because her dad is there. It's a beautiful play. It's, it's much more imagistic than what I'm describing but we had to double cast it. So in that play were Syrian or Middle East artists, actresses, speaking Korean, by the way, singing Korean. <laughs> but to have those women who were in another play by Anna Akash, which is about the inability to go home in a certain way and the yearning for home and the loss of people through violence and war was deeply, deeply profound. 
And the play about Black Lives Matter and the women who were murdered, as she mentioned, to walk out of that reading and see uh, Raide Taha, who is a Palestinian writer, weeping on the steps and my saying, well, are you okay? What's going on? I never knew. You know, she said to me, I'm quoting her, us Palestinians, we, we're very, very caught up in the victimhood of ourselves right now. And we don't know that there are black women in America. I mean, I don't think about these things. This is what happens in these situations. And it's just a small little bit mm-hmm. of, of, of the kind of resonance. It's, and it's that sense of, we oh, sounds so corny, but we are living in one world. And in America, it's, in America, it's very easy to forget that because we have been whatever, able to live in this little world called America, sort of. It's, it's inevitable that that's a falsehood, you know. So the notion that someone running for president wants to build walls is not just an anathema and ridiculous and insane and hideous and makes our blood curdle. It's just not the truth of the world. If we can do one thing in theater, it's empathy, right? It's what we do in the theaters. We try to create a space for empathy. So it's like a pebble in the giant ocean, but that's what I think Sundance is attempting to be part of, is to, you know, move around in the ways we can with a very, very limited budget, I have to tell you, um, and be able to communicate with people, ask the right questions, set up a spirit of inquiry in the room, which is what a, a dramaturg does, sets up a spirit of inquiry in the room and freedom in the room to allow the questions to come and come and come. There's always questions. That's beautiful. And it's actually a great segue to us opening things up to you all if you have questions for the panel about the work that they've been doing. And I'm going to give my microphone. Okay, hello, uh, hello, everyone. A quick question for Philip. Uh, initially, with the Eastern artists, were they a little bit uh, skittish in regards to getting an American or Western influence, you know, tainting? That's a great question. I'm I'm going to have Deborah talk about this as well. Let me give you a a good little story about that. And I just told them this story at lunch. So I live terrified of any kind of American influence on anybody outside of our country. (laughs) I mean, I really do because that has been the pattern, right? People with the best of intentions, Europeans, whatever, coming into an area of the world and saying, we're here to help or we're here to do something. That is not what we do. So the story I'll tell you is we're standing in a little path in Utah on the mountain. Uh, this wonderful artist you met, Kiki. What's her last name? Odile. Odile. Right, Katese. She um, was standing in the path. She had been at Sundance about two weeks and she said, I need to talk to you. I need you to help me figure out the end of my play. What, are, what should I do? And I said, I got, t- I got like frozen. And I said, I, I really can't answer that question. Let's sit and have a conversation. She said, we've had enough conversation. I need, I know you know, and I know I need you to tell me. I mean, you're, you're withholding. And I said, Kiki, there's a reason because, you know, I know American dramaturgy and I know what the 11th hour number may be or how to do the coda, but I don't know enough about Rwandan performance to just if I say what I'm going to say, I, I could be making a huge mistake. And and the other story I told was um, in Ethiopia. I told this last night in Addis Ababa. There are a lot of plays being staged with sofas on stage. And as we understood it from the stories, is that somewhere in the 70s, some gentleman showed up from the Soviet Union 
professed to be a great, great student of, I don't know, Meyerhold Stanislavski, and taught that theater very, very excitedly to Ethiopians and taught in the university. And the result of that is this sofa on stage, this sort of kitchen sink realism. Now, as time has gone on and he has thankfully moved away or... I don't know what happened to him. Um, so now there's extraordinary Ethiopian theater with, you know, ghosts coming in from the ceiling and people and, you know, coffins on stage that open up. But there's still the sofa <laughs> that nobody's even using. But somehow. So to answer your question is there's a huge problem with Americans or Europeans traveling around who have methodologies. Huge problem. And we try to be, I don't know if we always succeed, um, very, very uh, much the receivers. And we, we say we meet people on a bridge. We're not teachers, you know. I mean, we're just not. So uh, other people do that. So to answer your question, you know, where are you from originally? From Florida. From where? Florida. From Florida. So, um, I, you know, you know, uh, you should talk about this, that, that in, in, in Uganda and in, and in Kenya, the British influence basically destroying civilizations and imposing a certain kind of way of doing art is, it has been a devastation, you know? And they're still doing No Sex, Please, We're British in some of the theaters in Nairobi. Mm. They are. So to come in and say, you know, we're not going to work that way. We're not going to do a playwriting workshop that has a, you know, a kind of um, Aristotelian, Aristotelian, you know, that's one way of writing. But what are you doing? How are you working? You know, are you starting with movement? Are you starting with drums? Are you starting with, you know, what is the story you want to tell? Now, the other issue about that, though, is the story may never land for me because it's not the way I receive theater. It's not the way a Ugandan or a Kenyan will receive theater or a Tanzanian. So that's another thing. I may never be satisfied with it, you know? Um, So it's complicated. And so to answer your question, I think that it... In fact, it's almost the opposite. There's almost a lot of, you know, oh, this American's coming. Like the, like the royal court came last year and like the Soviet came the year before. And we have to break that. That's, that's another kind of it, sound, it sounds a little bit like the, the concern that you've expressed, the question that you asked is something that you're always asking yourself. Yeah, that's, that's a very great question. Um, and in addition to what Philip said, I remember in the initial visits, at least for Uganda, one of the things that came up was the skepticism from the artists. Because over the years, many artists were used to an expert coming in and teaching these methodologies, teaching workshops. So you would have in an artistic meeting called by the Sundance Theatre Programme, you would have people asking, are you here to, to teach a workshop? Are you here to train us in ABCD, playwriting, directing, acting? And then there were also other people who were very sceptical, saying, please do not come here with an agenda. If you would like us for us to have a conversation, let's have a conversation you know, at the same level. Uh, And I think that was great because that is what Sundance had. They didn't have any expectations to come with uh, an imposition of an agenda or content of what needed to be developed. So it was a a mixture of both that people, even before listening to what Sundance had to say, were already on the defensive. 
And then others were like, oh, teachers, even when we had started the labs and there was a certain level of expectation because that's what people were used to when it came to artists coming from elsewhere. They were used to, you know, being trained, being taught, being given, uh, you know, certain skills. So it was a mixture of both, at least for Uganda. Thank you. Bill, over here. Thanks. My question, I guess, sort of builds on on this last conversation. Uh, we're bringing Stu here in November, who uh, developed his Tony Award-winning uh, play, Passing Strange, uh, in part over two uh, Sundance labs in the States, and then was part of one of the East Africa labs. And he's going to be, in part, developing a new work with some other artists that he met uh, at the East Africa lab, Philip uh, Luswata and Eladari Masangi. And... In that sort of conversation, a lot of a lot of what he's looking at is that process of cross-cultural collaboration, which is the hardest part, I think, of this kind of work. So I was interested to hear you talk about sort of what you're trying to avoid in terms of uh, maintaining that balance. But I'm wondering, given that people are coming in with so many different artistic and aesthetic traditions, so many linguistic traditions, so many different political beliefs, so many different ways of working besides just uh, whether there's a table in the room or not a table in the room. I'm wondering if there are certain either exercises or processes or things that you do as a way to maintain the sort of sense of equality of all the different participants as people are working across so many different axes. It's a great question. Um, I don't think we have done exactly what you're going to be doing with Stu. I mean, I don't know if Stu's talked much about his time in Africa. It was, it was complicated for Stu to be in Africa. We brought him there. It was his first time there. And Philip Uswata is such a sophisticated, well-traveled, aware, you know, artist. He's not a neophyte. And Elidadi as well. Um, you know, I, I, have, I, I don't think that those three gentlemen in a room are going to have any problem finding a, a common kind of core. And I don't know, you know, we don't really do, as uh, Asimai said, we don't really do workshops or lead exercises per se. Every morning we would do a warm-up. And the way we would do the warm-up is that everybody who was part of the lab would bring in their warm-up. That was the equal playing ground to begin with. So over the course of, you know, 21 days, you had sort of 21 different ways in, and they were really different ways in. And some were movement-based, and some were sound-based, and some were percussive-based, and some were um, dance, and and some were text. People bring in text and, and have people read it. And I think beginning every day, people knowing off the top that, Ellie Daddy, this is your day to launch the rehearsal. And Stu, this is your day. And, and then the students who were participating as well brought in there. So there really was an equal playing field. That created a vocabulary right from the start and it let you sort of know. Also, I thought it's really important to have a lot of conversation initially um, along with that because I remember in one of the labs in Manda, in Lamu, there were a lot of women, African women artists, and they, for the first time, seemed to have agency in a different sort of way to say, you know what, before we begin, we're going to talk about being a woman artist in East Africa. (laughs) And it was kind of a challenge to the men. Oh, yeah. And it was right from the start. <laughs> it was like, we're not going to do day two until we, we deal with this, how we want to be treated, how we want to be heard. And it was very tense. And not every man in that room was comfortable with that. But it was a space where people safely could sort of state who they were 
and what their challenges and fears and expectations and anxieties were. So I think that both those things are helpful, you know, that there's actually conversation very, very transparently, and that there's also um, theater work that happens that other, you don't feel like, you know, Stu is, Stu would want to lead everything, right? I mean, Stu's amazing, but he'll want, when Stu came to Sundance to do Passing Strange, he had never done theater before. So he came in with this extraordinary story and all this incredible music, and I said, what do you want? He said, I want eight actors, cast eight amazing actors. The first day he sat like this and played all his music for everyone. It was really great. The second day he did that again. And the third day he was like playing his music. And I went in and said, hey, this play can be a solo piece for you. I don't really care. But you asked for eight actors. And they're, you know, they're not your audience. They're here to work. And he took up that charge amazingly. I don't know if I can think of another person who crossed over from music into theater that was so hungry to learn structure of making a musical and a musical that broke every single rule, right? And he had Annie Dorson with him, of course, who was leading him and then Mame Hunt as a dramaturg. But just to say that, I think the challenge may be to make sure that Ellie Daddy and Philip feel as much agency in that room as Stu will have because they will see him as, as he is, or this really accomplished man. Hi. Um, this question got me sort of thinking about if you have all these artists uh, trading traditions and warm-ups and stuff like that, I'm wondering about sort of cultural appropriation, like as these move, these artists move beyond the program. And if if that is something that, I, I'm, this is where my question is, like, is it celebrated? Has there been any, has there been an issue about that, especially like Americans appropriating cultural things as they move back to their own practices. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of interested in how things have affected each other beyond the program. And really, when you are, when you take part of the International Lab in Morocco, you really can feel that theater and art has done what politics couldn't do. And it's not being poetic or something, but it, you find out that all of you are artists um, and far from your culture, far from uh, your traditions, you are an artist. So I feel I'm uh, closer to somebody who comes from originally from Korea than to my neighbor in Beirut who doesn't talk to me. You know what I mean? You can find a um, very common ground to talk and to exchange. And it's not about learning at all or cultural exchange. It's, it's really not cultural exchange. It's just uh, listening to each other and really uh, questioning our own practice in our own countries when we come back. It puts you on railways that, uh, that, is, that are very, very needed for each practitioner. It, it refreshes. It, it's a lab. Yeah, I think what, what Max Posner, the young playwright, said there, that it makes my, my observation of what Max said is true, that it makes you want to go closer to the core of what you're saying and how you're telling your story. Now, I've never observed like someone sort of appropriating. I know what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was a really cool technique that they did. I'm going to try that. I haven't seen that. Maybe because the artists at Sundance are at a certain level, so they don't feel a need to sort of go and, 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 and take that way. I do think they probably appropriate something more subtle, you know, and, and it may be 
a way of seeing the world, a bigger way of seeing the world. I don't think they're there going like, oh, that was a really cool theatrical gesture and I'm going to take it. I don't think uh-huh. I have been, I would be able to, to actually say that. I think it's a deeper kind of appropriation and a kind of positive one as opposed to a sort of ripping off of another tradition. That's my feeling about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm uh, an interloper in all of this, so I'm going to ask a naive question, but one experience I've had here, actually, in this very room and in other places in Abu Dhabi, is Tim Supple. I don't know if you know his work. He's sort of influenced by Peter Brook, uh, Mahabharata. And he works, he's an, in, an English director, but he works with, um, he did a version of Midsummer Night's Dream in India in seven languages. And he, he was working for four years adapting the Arabian Nights into a, a, a stage play, but kind of alloy of, I mean, on the one hand, he was trying to reach an authenticity which is almost untouchable with the Arabian Nights because they're, they're sort of a moving target, which is a rather base way of describing them. But there, there's no such thing as authenticity. And yet he was looking for it in one sense by having um, Middle Eastern actors from all over the Middle East. And, and yet he was he, at the same time aware of doing something quite sui generis, you know, like, Brooks's Mahabharata and that Midsummer Night's Dream in India with where no one in the audience could possibly understand it. And yet, surely one of the things you do is, is to go to a play to understand. So there's another way of understanding than just listening and understanding Shakespeare's words. So I was wondering about the question of authenticity and um, invention and what kind of mixture ends up being more pronounced. Yeah, it's also a big question. I mean, I I want to. I almost want to quote from um, the musical Hamilton. You know, who gets to who who gets to tell your story, right? Um, I feel very fiercely that the West has told other people's stories far too much, and it should just stop. It has to just stop. That we have no right to tell other people's stories. Period. So um, again, with the best of intentions, I get you know nine hundred plays a year. I read a hundred of them. I've had a wonderful play about Rwanda written by a gentleman who passionately felt something about Rwanda, visited Rwanda, talked to people. But only a Rwandan can tell the story of Rwanda, as far as I'm concerned. I I really believe that. You know, I wrote a play about five Filipino, transvestite Filipino men living and working in Israel. Um, The only way I could find into that play was through the Israeli photographer who had sort of documented them. Because I kind of get that world... I'm closer to that man. I'm a gay Jew. I can deal with that. So I could tell that story. But I have certain reservations about my telling the story of the five Filipino gentlemen. And I don't know if I would choose to do that again. You know, it's the lens through which you're going to tell that story. And I think it's it's very, very complicated nowadays. When I went to Rwanda and uh, stayed in the hotel that we're, that was Hotel Rwanda and proudly told the Rwandans that I had seen that film and expounded on what that movie was about. He said, well, that film was a bunch of shit. That film was all wrong. That wasn't the truth. That guy didn't do that. That guy did that. But that's how Americans get our information, right, from this beautiful, beautiful, well-intentioned Hollywood movie. So I I just think that's sort of over. And, you know, nothing to say against Peter Brook or anybody. I mean, my God, he's shaped my life in terms of the kind of work he does. But at this moment, for a while, I think Syrian plays need to be told by Syrians. And uh, that's it. For me, this is a matter that one always has to be vigilant about. It isn't just about having an answer about what cultural appropriation is and 
never doing that. It's more a matter of being aware and vigilant every moment as to what it might be. And I think that's the greater challenge. That's uh, harder. And maybe for, for, for me, it's more meaningful to just sort of be in the moment and, and really have to make that decision every single day because it, it changes. It's a dynamic. It's, it's alive. Yeah. One more question. Yes. Thank you. My question is directed to both our um, guests from Uganda and from the Middle East. Um, it was mentioned a moment ago that Rwandans have to tell the story of Rwanda, for example. That will make me assume that Ugandans have to tell the story of Uganda or Middle Easterns have to t tell the story of the Middle East. And I wanted to ask, in that process of telling the local story, have you perceived that locals, since the stories are harsh or challenging, they demonize these stories, they find them as taboos, they think that they speak what should be not talked about? What is the reaction from the people when someone else who's part of that community tells their own story? That is a really, really good question. I'll give an example in addition to Hotel Rwanda of The Last King of Scotland. I know when it premiered the film, do you all know The Last King of Scotland? When it premiered in Uganda, many Ugandans were like, oh, wait, so the film is actually not about Idi Amin. It's about the doctor who worked with Idi Amin. So that was the first surprise. And then the second surprise was most of the events in the film are actually not based on the book, The Last King of Scotland, but on another book called The State of Blood by Henry Chamber, who was a minister in Idi Amin's regime and had to go into exile. So that was the second thing that really surprised many audiences in Uganda when they, they saw the, the film. So as you can imagine, there was a, a bit of an outrage. So it, it is very complicated. I think, like Philip said, I think for centuries, many communities in Africa, their stories have been told by other people and told, you know, according to the way they think the stories are. And there have been many gross misrepresentations. And I think there's, there's a generation that feels, you know, we actually know how to tell stories. And we have great storytellers who can tell these stories. So, and, and that is not to say that there haven't been storytellers from elsewhere who have told you know, stories from other communities in African societies in, you know, in some authentic ways that, you know, that some communities in Africa have celebrated. But still, since, the, since we can speak for ourselves, I think it makes the most sense that but we might tell but our I, stories. If I may, is, is your question also referring to when someone locally tells the story, what the reaction of other local people is? That's how I interpreted his question. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's also very interesting, a matter of interpretation. Yeah, that is, that is a very interesting question. That, what thing is, I think for countries that were colonized, you will not find one community. And so you have, you know, for example, in Uganda, you have different, you know, nationalities or tribes or whatever. So someone from a different tribe telling a Ugandan story but based on a, another tribe, that can also be complicated. 
So that's one way. And then the second way is, you know, still as a, as a storyteller, as a playwright, they have their own lens of looking at things, which may not necessarily be something that members of that particular community will agree with. So there will always be people who will say, oh, no, but this story is not told the way I view it, for example, the way I understood it. So there, there will always be that. But I think in a nutshell, at least for Uganda's case, people tend to be hostile, nowadays tend to be hostile to people who are coming from elsewhere, from the outside. I just wanted to, to add to both of you also, uh, on the first point you were talking about, is that don't only let us tell our story, but don't tell us what to say. Because nowadays the most dangerous in the Middle East, like all the funds, the productions, they want us to talk about this, that, that. A Syrian artist has to talk about that. A Palestinian has to talk about this. Oh no, Palestine is not a la mode anymore. It's so dépassé. So this is uh, also an, an addition to what you're saying. But uh, regarding your question, when I'm practicing in Lebanon, when I do my art in Lebanon, of course, I want to tell this story. And also, I want to provoke something. Otherwise, why am I doing theater if it's not a political, everyday practice? In a country, for example, in Lebanon, where we had the amnesty law in 1991, where everybody was forgiven suddenly and there was no even history book written about it, and we have 17,000 kidnapped, I have, as an artist, the responsibility to talk about it even if it disturbs, even if it's a taboo, even if militiamen are now uh, in the government. So yes, it disturbs. And now how to deal afterwards with censorship, how to deal with your own censorships, these are really other, other questions completely. There's one thing I do want to say about Sundance, which is one of our other core values is freedom of expression, which is one thing that we do, at least until November, tend to have in the United States. Now, we talk a lot about risk-taking. Now, for an American to take a risk, it's really no big deal. I mean, oh, yeah, it's scary to talk about the fact that whatever, whatever's taboo, but ultimately, it's not really that big a risk. But it's very, very risky sometimes for a Middle East artist or for an artist from some countries in Africa to tell stories. Uh, artists have been killed, they've been exiled, and they continue to be. So the responsibility that Sundance Institute has when we say take a risk Freedom of expression is complex. Now, we'll take somebody to Morocco where they can work without worrying about the censor coming in about what they have to say. Now, whether they can tell their story back in Beirut or tell their story back in Ramallah is another question. And we have to be very careful and cautious to not mislead our artists into a false sense of security because people can be in danger. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we talk about a lot. So if you're an artist from, I don't know where, and you're talking about, you know, sexuality in a certain way, Uganda, good example, mm -hmm. you know, and you're proudly able to, at Sundance in Utah, scream it from the rooftops, that may not be smart to do when you go home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how does, what is Sundance's role if something happens to an artist is something that we talk about a lot. And we've actually participated in when one of our artists, um, Saramaga, mm -hmm. um, was arrested. We got on the phone mm -hmm. and said, we are Americans. We know this artist. We know you've taken this artist. We're watching you. You know, and eventually he was released. 
I'm not saying that we did that, a lot of people, but there's a lot of complications in terms of freedom of expression and how it translates or doesn't translate back home sometimes. Thank you, Philip. So we've come to the end of our time uh, for the panel, but I just wanted to thank you all so much for being here, coming to Abu Dhabi, sharing your stories with us. And uh, it's, a, it's a project for which I have a great admiration. So it was wonderful for me to hear about it. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming tonight. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. <laughs>